My name is Bea Gonzalez, and I am a writer of mostly novels. And I'm Jay Rettelsberger, a singer-songwriter. We began a conversation on Twitter some time ago about Carl Jung, art, and the creative process, and we decided to share our discussion with all of you. So we were going to talk about the concept of mystery today. And this all evolved from uh, me really getting interested again in the work of Elaine Pagels. And she wrote something called the Gnostic Gospels in 1979, actually. So she was a Princeton scholar. I think she's probably retired by now because she's about 80. But at the time, uh, that's when uh, there was a big, well, first of all, let me backtrack. That what this is about are some scrolls that were found in 1945 in a place called Naj Hammadi in Egypt uh, by two basic, you know, uh, I don't know what you would call them, uh, just young men. They were going to find some fuel for their fire and they were digging in this area that had a lot of caves and uh, they dug down and found a canister or a, an earthenware pot that was about a meter long. Is this and what's it, known as the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. I'm not sure. No, I don't. I don't think it is actually. I think that's a separate thing. That that was found, I think, somewhere else. Because they were the found in year. caves. They were found yes, in caves as well. as well. So I guess caves. Well, if you think about it, what I'm going to talk about now is the caves are traditionally. If you go to Galicia, where I'm from, the earliest monastery you'd find also in a cave. You have to climb to this place, and it was dug in because, of course, monasteries were placed the places where you retreated to, and this was very. Um, uh, they were they they started showing up at about the fourth fifth century. Anyway, they find these, they, they find this earthenware pot and, um, you know, they think at first oh, it might be gold, so might as well find it. So they open it. At first, they're kind of scared because they think there might be a genie in there and that could be bad luck. But then they they think, you know, well, it might be gold. So they they smash it. And what they find actually are these scrolls. And of course, they, they don't know what they are and they don't give it any value. They take it home. And in fact, in one of the biggest tragedies of history, the mother takes some of these scrolls and puts them into the fire to fuel the fire. So I just this is kind of like for I'm a writer and I'm in love with books and I love this story. And it makes me think of the burning of the the. The library at Alexandria. And if you talk to any writer and lover of books, they just, you just want to get, you just, just feel sick at the idea that all this knowledge disappeared, you know? It, it you know what? It reminds yeah. me of uh, um, someone that's dreaming and has a profound dream that there's no way they could forget it and they turn back to sleep and, and when they it. wake up in the morning, yeah, it's the yes, same. Thing. It's awful. It's like you can yeah. grab it and it's gone. It's absolutely gone. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a very good comparison. So I, I, when I read this, I thought, oh, this is painful. She threw someone to the fire. These scrolls eventually through this long story, which is fascinating, and I wish somebody would make a movie about it. They end up in the hands of an antiquarian dealer in Cairo. And some one of them, some of them are smuggled out to, I think, England, where a man called uh, Gilles de Crispel. Anyway, he was, a, he was in the Netherlands, but he had some connection to Jung. And when he realized what was there, which were these codices that were, were dated to, they figured about the third fourth century. They were in Coptic. That's why they're not the Dead Sea Scrolls, because I think those were in Aramaic. This is Coptic. So, but they understood that they were translations of Greek texts into Coptic. So then they understood these had, had to be hidden here around the fourth century by who? What, what was going on? And what was going on in the history of Christianity is that was when the famous conversion by Constantine. And the reason he converted was not because he was particularly uh, <laughs> religious, because in fact, there was this story about how he was looking for a certain propitious time in the sky, which didn't really match the Christian idea. But the Roman Empire was spread. It was one of the, you know, I think might have been the empire that was spread the most across the world. And his thinking was, well, how do you unite 
people in Egypt and in Spain and in, in Rome, you know, and in Greece? How do you take all these places and make them one? And the, the way you do it is through a common idea, a common religion, right? A canon. So, uh, that's it, the canon. So he did, he said, okay, well, you know, I'm going to I'm going to declare that I am now a Christian, and if you are part of the Roman Empire, you will be a Christian. And of course, if you don't agree to this, it's not good for you. You're going to end up dead. And I mean, the the, the horrific stories around the persecutions around this time of those who did not want to follow this path. But it's 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 brutal. And so the, why do you need this as well? Well, if you're going to have uh, any kind of belief system, uh, you want to have something that not, can only unite, but then you can also um, uh, create a structure around which people will have to participate in some way. And the problem with what appeared, the, the little that was that was kept from these scrolls, is that it shows that the kind of Christianity that was there, and there were, of course, are very many competing uh, sex didn't really believe in structures of that nature. In fact, uh, the, the the teachings are more about a light, like about light that's in you. And here's where they really differ. In the in the Christian ideal, there's only one Christ, right? One Christ, and we all, you know, that's that's he's the one that's the Son of God. The rest of us are sort of, you know, bound before that. In the Gnostic ideal, we all have that light, mm-hmm. and your job in life is to connect to that light. Even more, and it gets really interesting at this point, uh, because what was interesting about Elaine Pagels' book, which I really recommend, and that's the first book I'm going to recommend today. It's called The Gnostic Gospels. But because it was published in 1979, she's really, her thinking has evolved. She's written many books before that. So I just listened to a talk she gave recently. And, uh, you know, her, her contention in 1979 is that the only reason Christianity survived was because you got rid of these sects. Because if you have a religion that says, look, just Try to connect to that light within through practices, fasting, whatever. You don't really need somebody translating it for you, right? You don't need the structure. You just need to have the right teacher. <laughs> and that teacher could be anybody who's already found the light, right? So it's not the same ideal that we have. And so at the time, she said, actually, it was really necessary. You want Christianity to be what it is. You almost needed that structure. You couldn't really have these people that were more representative of the mystical strain in a religion, which, as you know, exists in every religion. It's not just Christianity. It's Jewish. Islam. Uh, every religion, Hindu, has has an aspect of it that is the the mystical path. And what, what's interesting about the, what she says now is that uh, if you read them, what they have and what they've been able to translate, and of course, you know, the famous one is the Gospel of Thomas, because everybody knows that one line. It's her favorite <laughs> right. line. You know, if you don't bring them, right. if you if you bring what is within you, what is within you will save you. But if you do not bring what is right. within you, will, will, that will destroy you. Uh, she read it psychologically your first time, which I think we both would read psychologically, mm-hmm. right? But as she's gotten older and she suffered her own tragedies, she's started to read it theologically as well. And 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 the way she does it by having spoken to many scholars is that, look, the light is within. That's what they were trying to say. And her contention is that there were two forms of Christianity from the beginning. One was the one that you were giving in parables and forms of parables. Why? You know, it's often said, well, the best way to tell a truth is to tell it in story. Mm-hmm. Her contention is actually the opposite that the real truth was being held by the initiates, these, these people that had direct access to, to, the, to the really deeper teachings. And that the reason the rest was in parables is because you couldn't understand, because their idea was only certain people will be able to understand because it's an experiential path. You have to be able to go within. You know, that's why the desert keeps showing up. You have to be able to contact something within. And you often have to find the right teacher, and then you have to do the work. Well, the, the vast majority of people are not going to be able to do that. So what do you do? You give information that is really powerful, but you encode it in such a way that it makes it very difficult for people to really understand the true essence of it. But fundamentally what it is, and this is where I started thinking about Jung a lot, that we are one, 
and one becomes two when you split it into female uh, masculine. But the idea is you want to reunite those two and become one again. How do you do that? Well, you do that through that inner work, that that reflection, that uh, through these practices that were passed from initiate to initiate, but would have not included the rest of the people. And of course, within that, there's Mary Magdalene, who was a, a woman. And there's this famous passage where Peter says, well, how dare you tell a story <laughs> in the deep way that we are? And she said, well, are you accusing me of being a liar, basically? And uh, eventually she's accepted as one of the teachers. Of course, this is a radical departure politically, uh, theologically. And, you know, there's still arguments that it's quite interesting hearing Hegel's go to different places to talk to other theologians and how, you know, um, there's just, yeah, there's always going to be resistance. But the idea that it, it mirrors the mystical path of other faiths is, it just seems logical to me. There has to be in every path. And then if you, even within, as it evolved, if you look at the mystics, the Christian mystics of like Santa Teresa de Jesus and San Juan de la Cruz, these are people that that really access the same thing, even within the structure of what was created by Christianity. Okay, how do we bring in Jung? So the best person to read if you're interested in this and how it connects to Jung, because definitely there is a big connection to Jung. Um, I think he was accessing some of the same ideas and then he just he just made it into a psychological language or he interpreted it psychologically and in between is alchemy and we'll leave that for another day. But the, the person to read is a guy called Stephen Holler who wrote the Gnostic Young and he is really good and you can actually find him all over YouTube. So if you don't want to read the book, which I recommend anyway, that's another way because what he does is he takes all of these Gnostic uh, teachings, what we have. And he, he he tells you how they connect directly to Jung. And he explains it extremely well. But I mean, as you're listening to Elaine Pagels, you can hear Jung. You can say, oh, that's where Jung would have said, yes, I see how, he, how, how it all came together. Um, and why is this important? Well, because the Jungian path for me, if you're going, I mean, of course, I hate to even say it's a path because you know what? I mean, I bring so many things in. I've been doing Sufi meditation. I, it's not really, but I think where it resonates for me is the idea that you don't have to look without that you can look within and that maybe all of it's there and it transcends gender and it has nothing to do with power structures. And it's not, you have, you, nobody's going to guide you there. You're going to have to find your way. And that's actually part of the the, the whole, uh, well, for me, what makes it interesting. And ultimately that you're responsible to finding that light, because if you don't find it, then it's like a part of it is missing. Because underneath, undergirding all this is the idea that to become conscious, and this is where we'll bring in, you can bring in um. Uh, answer to Job. By the way, just as an aside, it occurred to me that in the whole time we've been talking about Jung, we've never recommended a book written by Jung. And yet today, <laughs> okay, we're about to recommend one of the most difficult works that Jung wrote, one of his later works, one of his most contentious works, the one thing that probably exiled him from it, well, the famous stories, Victor White, and he, he had a, you know, was a piece who had a correspondence for with the year for years. I mean, you know, that was it. It was ended Victor White French. being a theologian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he they had ended their relationship because, you know, it just it went too far for what Victor White could could uh, could could accept. So, but anyway, but we'll bring it in because I do think this is really interesting, and I think this is where a lot of the the work. And I think to, eventually I do want to talk about alchemy because I think alchemy is fascinating. But the book that he wrote, Mysterium, uh, about alchemy is so incredibly impenetrable that you almost have to work your way up by going sideways and you know uh, just trying to lay down the groundwork and then over time trying to figure out what he was trying to do with that. But I find it fascinating, the whole Gnostic, I find it fascinating that it was 1945 when these, these earthenware jars suddenly show up uh, and they, these documents, like they've been sitting there for, for so long. And I, I don't know why, just the whole concept of synchronicity comes up and how we were ready to receive that because had it been 200 years earlier, I think we would have had a problem accepting anything as a, as a collective. Um, the fact that they somehow ended up in the hands of somebody who knew Jung, who knew that Jung was interested in, in um 
in this whole question and who who then asked the Jung Foundation to give money to buy it and they did. So the Jung Codus was was with Jung for a while before it was repatriated back to uh, Egypt, which who rightly said this is our stuff. You shouldn't be hanging on to it. Um anyway, it's just there's this just a series that the, the story is so cinematic and and um it reminds me of why I'm ticked off at Hollywood. I'm ticked off at Hollywood for a lot of things. But the two best stories ever are involve books for me anyway, because I'm a book person. One is the Cosimo the, the Medici story, where I, I'm, I, I'm not sure if I mentioned it to you, but it is probably my favorite story of Cosimo de Medici being the banker who starts the Renaissance basically in Florence because he's so interested in all these, uh, again, by the way, scrolls that are sitting in, in, the, in, in monasteries and he wants them translated. And so he, fire, he hires this very eccentric intellectual, Marcello Ficini, to do that. And off he goes, Plato, everything's being translated. And then the church, the Eastern Church falls in 1453 because the Ottoman Turks attack it. Okay, so where did the scrolls from those places end up? From the monasteries, they're smuggled into places like Greece where they can be kept safe. Off goes Leonardo, who's his book scout. <laughs> I just love the idea of having a book scout. In my dreams, that's what I would have. I'm going to have a person that just goes around grabbing the books I need, okay? That's my idea of a fantasy. Anyway, so he goes off he, and he finds in one of these monasteries a copy of the Corpus Hermeticum which is what they thought was a, a, um, uh, a book that went back to, was written by the legendary Hermes, Trismegistus, and they thought, well, it went back to the times of Moses. So it was, this is like, predates everything. So they were so excited, he gallops back to Florence. And Cosimo de Medici at this time is very old and very sick. So he knows he's going to die. So he says to Marcelo Ficini, you've got to stop translating everything. You have to translate this book for me. Here's how Hollywood disappoints. So what a great story. I mean, this is like the, the tradition that undergirds the entire Renaissance. The painters would meet there. He had all these incredible meetings of, of the best minds in Florence, which, you know, we still go see the art. Netflix gets a hold of it. What do they make? They make a, a film where they're, where they're focusing on Cosimo de Medici's very boring, boring relationship to his wife, but they, they dramatize it. And I just wanted to kill myself. I was like, are you kidding? Uh, yeah, they, the painters are there. Again, they're focusing on the relationships they're having. It's just so disappointing. But again, I guess you, you have to look elsewhere to, to find something. Um, anyway, so I would like similarly a, an intelligent treatment of what went down with the Nazi. You said there were two stories. Well, the other one is the one I just told you, the, the idea of finding these books buried in the desert, which are really oh, the scrolls. Okay. And, and the, by the way, I don't know if I said this already, so, so if I have, I apologize. But the reason they were, the, the theory is that because this became prohibited knowledge, the, the monks that had been translating it to Coptic. You know, they, they're the ones that hit it there because they didn't, they were told to destroy it. And I love that, that you don't, just, no, I don't want to destroy it. I will find a place and hopefully in a historical period sometime later, somebody will find it. It's not, like, that's the very definition to me of romance. Forget the rest of it. That is incredible. Having the faith, they're going to dig it in these caves and somebody will, and it takes 1500 years or, well, yeah, 1500 years, essentially for it to be discovered, just a little bit under 1,500 years. I, I don't know. I just find those stories. They're better than any fiction you come up with. I think the timing's interesting as well because of the year, you know, 1945, there's a lot of history that's happening yeah, no kidding. at that time. You know, we, we um, you know, the atom bombs were 
were dropped yep. and then then the Cold War. And so, you know, if you were if you were writing a myth about this, you would say they showed up at a time when uh, insight and restraint were needed. Yeah. That's a very good way to put it. That is exactly, and that's actually what we do in my group all the time is we interpret the world mythologically. That's what you just did. So why did it show up in 1945? You're totally right. Complete destruction of the world as we knew it and recreation under a new standard that was going to feel threatening and it still does. And at that time, we recover ancient knowledge. And the interesting thing about the ancient knowledge is in it, there is a solution to the self-destruction, which is you got to do the inner work. And of course, Jung is already articulating this in his own work. He's going around lecturing to whoever will listen to him, to him which are, frankly, he's still a French uh, group, part of a French group. But it's, it's like it's all coming to consciousness at the same time. And this aligns with one of my theories that it's almost like there is a story maker where the consciousness is evolving as, as it can. And, you know, someone can easily argue. And, and of course, it's completely random. And that could be true. I don't know. But as a storyteller, I'm always looking for the story. And so what you just gave is the storyteller's interpretation of this, because what a storyteller tries to do is the feminine thing. Connect. How do these things connect? And yeah, 1945 is a pretty important year, right? Mm -hmm. What's, what, what just happened was traumatic. Whatever the world went through is traumatic. And more importantly, because I think I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the atom bombs. I mean, that also showed everybody that we can now destroy ourselves. So that's a completely different game. Okay, what right. says. Yeah. And, and that's uh, where part of where Jung goes and uh -huh. the answer to Job is. So, in, so I'll give in, the background in, first of answer to Job, like uh, late work. It isn't. A, yeah, it, it's a late, late work. 1950 early 50s. something. Yeah. Uh, 52, yeah. 53, something okay. like that. I, I could be wrong. I could be. Don't, it's, don't it's, well, I, I catalog. Okay, let's put it this way. The way I catalog his works is prior to heart attack, post heart attack. This is definitely post heart attack. It's his big yeah. work, part of three that, that become the most important things with ion and mysterium. So it's in that bracket. It's the three most important works, his later works. Yeah. So, okay, go ahead. So what is this about? So it's it's about the story of Yahweh and the evolution of of Yahweh, but also the evolution of of humankind, of humankind's consciousness. And he uses Yahweh as the central figure. And the reason why Job is is mentioned is because in the book of Job, there's a wager between Satan and Yahweh on how faithful Job can be or will be, you know? Um, and so through that wager and, and through all these evils that are happening to Job because of this nature to see whether or not he's faithful to, to Yahweh, Yahweh becomes aware of Job's suffering. And this, in what, Yo, what, what Jung basically, basically postulates is that uh, Yahweh was without self-reflection and needed Job as kind of a mirror uh, so that he could intervene in his own creation. And the way he intervenes in his own creation is through Christ, through incarnating himself in man. And then now uh, Yahweh is afforded insight into what it is to be human and what it's like to actually be within this thing that he himself has created. And so, you know, this is how uh, Yahweh becomes transforms into the Redeemer. He puts his feet on the earth. He's He has a body now. And he suffers everything humans suffer, and, and he dies. He dies. He dies a death, which was his death was purposeful for him, uh, for the character, because it was only through that death that uh, he himself could be redeemed, and the world could be redeemed. But it was most importantly for Yahweh, because 
in that in the death and resurrection, he is the gift to humanity. Now to, and this is where the Gnostic stuff comes in, is kind of imprinting on the human soul or psyche that the light is within, that we all carry the Redeemer inside of us. And so where he goes with this development, of course, he talks about, you know, y'all with that transformation the Holy Spirit is is uh, is left in its place, and and that's the boon. But he talks about mass man quite a bit in this period, and that if one is not conscious of the Christ light within, that one is like Yahweh, and in, in in humanity itself is an entity, and that is the unconscious Yahweh, and mass man is because in 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 with that humanity has the ability to destroy the planet to destroy itself it now has the power and of course this is this is following you know the advent of um, nuclear proliferation and which is the the importance of finding the christ light within uh so that one can disengage from mass man and become an individual and you know walk this earth as you were meant to be and you you are you are going through the same thing that that Yahweh did at that point which is personal insight and uh not inflicting um unnecessary harm on on your neighbor it's also i think speaks to the concept that i've learned through the sufis which is that it is like a tapestry and those who don't do this work are kind of letting down the the whole enterprise because to a certain degree you do need you do need enough people doing this sort of level of work to be able to make sure that it doesn't go off off the rails all completely but then it's even bigger if this is part of an evolving story then you're part of that evolving story and you have to contribute not by going into regressive um, thinking but by having the courage to do work where and I think this is where James Hollis ticks people off, but what I find really amazing about him as a writer, where the responsibility always lands on you. It's just the, your parents aren't to blame, no matter how terrible they are. And, you know, I'm talking and I'm sure that we push back and I understand that even in the case of extreme abuse, he will say you are tied to the abuser until you can find a way out. Um, and it's not easy. And that is the hardest task of all. But it's the idea that at some point you have to find a way to to find that like the, the the important thing is finding that light that path which is no one else's and that means um, assuming parts of your life that were terrible because James always James Hollis always says wherever you are now is because of what happened before you couldn't be where you are now so there's a denial of the present by saying well this shouldn't have happened my husband shouldn't have laughed my job shouldn't have disappeared it's irrelevant in, in that universe because that's not even the reason the reason you're trying to if you want a deeper uh, interpretation it's you're actually here to figure out where that light is and how you're going to actualize it, how you're going to bring it forth. And it becomes a little bit hard because, well, first of all, you're going to fight against the collective. So that's because the collective doesn't isn't really interested in your light. They would rather you follow the rules and you, you know, you do certain things that fit in with whatever structures you've created. So already it's going to be a problem. But B, I think it takes a lot of courage to do this kind of work because there is no reward. Uh, and Pagos mentions also, and I think Jung would say that, having gone through this himself, that a lot of people doing inner work on this level can also encounter parts of themselves that can be dangerous to them, right? 
I mean, so you have to be careful even in, mm -hmm. in that case. But I like the idea that we are evolving and that it's a collective evolution and that we all have a part in it. But you're not going to be saved by anybody, <laughs> your priest, your whatever, your pastor, whatever, whatever you turn to, that really ultimately the idea is that what you're trying to do is find that part in yourself and possibly assume responsibility for whatever that entails. And sometimes it isn't easy. Actually, I would say most of the time it isn't easy, which is why I think Joseph Campbell always talks about how hard the path is. Uh, you know, it is it is not about bliss. It really isn't blissful when when no. No, and I and I think sometimes, y'all. You know, I mean, I think everybody always makes fun of Campbell because of follow your bliss. But so if you look at these Gnostic teachings, what's really interesting about it is a first, I think this is what gives rise, and I'm I'm totally seduced by this. So I understand why there's an interest in the idea of the secret society. You know, uh, there's a secret. So some people are holding on to a secret, and we want to know what the secret is, and then. In its most shadow-like way, what does this lead to? The conspiracy theory, right? You right. Know, not only are they holding on to a secret, but they're controlling you. But I think if you look at it from that, the perspective of the Gnostics, no, there are some teachings that people are not prepared to receive, and they shouldn't have access to them because they can be used inappropriately. They can be perverted. They can be, you know, whatever. They can just be misused. And so there's an idea that there's a lineage, but but now it's not about a lineage that goes, okay, this there's a pope, and then there's the bishops. No, no. It's about of gnosis, understanding. Mm -hmm. And actually, she she gives the difference between the two words, two ways of understanding. And it goes right back to the Greeks, and it's in every language, including, you know, my first language, Spanish which is the difference between knowing and recognizing. And that's the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Knowing is, listen, I can tell you, we've just been talking, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And this happened in 1945 and, and whatever. Recognizing is that moment. And we've all had it when something, you just, the whole body feels it. Yeah, it can happen in the weirdest times. You just have this experience. You've been exposed to something or someone or something, some part that that you never have. And some the whole body responds. It's like something is just connected in a very deep way. What we often do in that case is we, we we give our power to that person, to that thing. We say, oh, you know, it's the Bible and that's what I connected to because it is such a powerful thing or it's that person who came into my life. But what they're saying is, no, it's a moment of recognition to go inside and say, okay, what part of you has just come alive, right? It's harder and it's not, let's face it, that's why people go to the movies. It doesn't seem as interesting because it's a lot more interesting if you can project it onto something out in the world. But I love that distinction between gnosis as knowledge or no, knowing as knowledge that you pick up and that you're, you know, sort of, it's great. We can all talk about it. And then the, the recognition, which is about uh, a connection. You've made a connection that was not there before. Does that make sense? Would you say, I mean, the way that I hear it being described right now, it, it sounds very esoteric, but um, I don't think it's meant to be that way no. necessarily. Okay, so um, when you say esoteric, what do you mean by, by that? I mean by, you know, a very limited few people have the capacity. No, um, I, I believe to, it's the opposite. I okay. believe that, the, okay, so we've talked about this before, and I've just been recently reading a book, but rereading, because he retitled it, and so it confused me, and I didn't realize I'd read it before, by John Hall called Divine Madness. 
this is the phenomenon we've talked about before. It's the phenomenon mm-hmm. that it undergirds romantic love. It's probably what happens in, in political rallies where people get all connected in ways sure, that yeah. becomes dangerous. So it's there. All we're doing. So the, the difference is the ability to recognize that actually it's just connecting to a part of you that is coming alive. And the appropriate way would be to investigate, but an interior investigation. Don't go talking mm-hmm. to the grouper. Do you know what I mean? No, I was talking about um, the way that like some people are meant for this. Some people aren't meant for this. Oh, okay. Well, that, I mean, that part of it. That's a, that's a very interesting. Oh, that's a really interesting question. Yeah, I don't know. That, that's true because from the beginning, they were the group that were the in-group and then they, they, they only shared knowledge with the people. But is it not true? Like, let's think of it um, in a different way. Let's see if we can rethink about it. Okay. So there are some cases, in some cases, where you don't take a person who is running a marathon, who wants to run a marathon. You don't do a 1K run and then do a marathon the next day. There is an evolution in your own self mm-hmm. to your body to be able to work it out. Right. Could it be possible yeah. that the people that are, um, and this is with a whole very troublesome view of levels comes in, right? But is it possible that what they're saying is to be prepared to receive the knowledge Maybe you do need to go into the desert for 40 days, right? And maybe you right. know that's of course tracking with every, you know, sky object, whatever. But it's the idea that you are you 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 can't some some okay, here it is. Some, the ego has to be softened. Yes, ego, maybe that's it. You have to be receptive and 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 prepared. Now, in some cases, right, there are some people who are right now spiritual teachers of the new thinking, and one of them is a cartoli. And he said at 29, he was suicidal and he had a very bad night when he was going to kill himself. And that in that deep, deep despair, in that suicidal despair, something broke inside. It just, and then he has never really gone back. It's like his thinking changed. Okay. Paul, Paul on the road. to Exactly. Well, there's, there's many, many examples. And then you can say, well, he's a charlatan. You know, am I going to believe him? That's, forget it. That is his account. And I I don't care. What I'm saying is that there are accounts by people. And I don't know if Paul had that conversion either. So who knows? But the accounts are of a sudden lightning strike. But even Eckhart Tolle and his teachings will say, it's not going to happen this way to most people. It happens through a recognition of presence, because this whole game is, listen, most of your world, most of your, your, uh, your problems come from the way you think. So it's not actually anything that is anybody who say, oh, it's crazy. No, it's actually, he's probably right. The Stoics have the same idea. So it's not new. But what he's saying is the, you, most people are not going to wake up one day and say, oh, my mind is making me crazy, right? That's just not going to happen, right? Can we agree right. on that? All right. Yes. So maybe most people, as he said, and other teachers will say the same thing. Certainly in the Sufi tradition, they will say that in other traditions as well. Um, and most of the mystical traditions, I think, because when, when I talk about the Sufis, the, the Sufi order that I did some meditation with is the, of the West. It has nothing to do with, with any anything specifically tied to a more traditional form. But the point is that all of them will say hey, it's cumulative. You don't suddenly awaken. <laughs> it's right. like, yes, maybe two or three people. So maybe that's what that means. It's not anything about uh, uh, you're special. What it says is, right, have, you, right. have you done the That's work? just what I wanted to clarify. Okay. I just no, no, want, I, agree, I, I, I wanted to make sure that was clear. Okay. No, absolutely. Because then otherwise what you're saying is you were born to do this and somebody isn't. No, it would say a little bit like James Hollis, have you done the work? You know, uh, right. you know, Hollis has great stories about people who do analysis and at the beginning enter 
with really deep grief about, you know, parental stuff. And it's through the process of analysis, listening to their dreams um, that you change. And, and it's happened to you. It's happened to me, you know, over time, when you start looking at the world a little bit differently, everything changes. The outside mm -hmm. world does, but it's because you put some effort and some insight into it. It just doesn't, you know, I'm sure there's a couple that get lightning strikes, but I, I don't look at it this way at all. I look at it as, am I prepared? As you said, actually, you said it brilliantly to soften the ego, to give up a lot of what I thought was me. And in fact, most people struggle because the inner urgings, okay, what, what, what the self, if you want to put it in the big capital S, okay, are what, what it's prompting you to do means the sacrifice of certain things you don't want to. First of all, safety and security. A lot of people mm. won't make changes to their lives because they're afraid of losing those two fun. And I can understand that's like a first level uh, survival issue, right? Secondly, the, the acceptance of their family, big deal there acceptance of their peers, the third level. So yeah, so it takes a, I mean, I don't think this is an easy path. So are you going to give knowledge to people who, I mean, okay, first of all, would they even accept knowledge? <laughs> if you are a person that's not even gotten to, had to look inside and say, is this working for me? Are you going to even accept somebody coming to you and saying, well, you know what? You're looking at the world very literally. What you really need to start looking at is the world metaphorically. And so once you do, gender isn't going to be an issue for you because it's not what you think it is. It's, you know, we're transcending categories. We're not limiting ourselves to think, to seeing things in one way. Therefore, you're going to have to give up your prejudices. That's hard. People like their prejudices. Maybe you have to give up your hate. That's hard as well because people like, so there's a whole bunch of stuff actually that you're hanging on to, which is your self-definition. And you're probably going to have to give that up. And honestly, in my experience, you know, the reason young groups are very small or groups that the Sufi meditation groups are very small, you know, it's because I think comfort will always, I remember how Yvonne France and, and uh, Jung would both say that at the end of the day, what you suffer more from is laziness. That's the biggest, uh, the biggest problem human beings have, that they just, they would rather, and I think when they say laziness, they mean it is a lot easier to stay where you are, even if you're in deep pain, right. than to actually make a step outside yeah. of it. They don't mean yeah. sloth. They mean no, no complacency. Yeah, it's a, it's easier, yeah. right? So yeah, yeah. I don't know where we're heading with this, but I think maybe maybe this is it. This is the whole thing. I don't know. I think people should. Okay, let's let's address this question. Should people read Answer to Job? Is this a book that should be read prior to having an encounter? Is this a little bit like we talked about softening ego? Should they really jump to Answer to Job before they've experienced? other young or is it okay jump in you know what what would you say you've got christian friends i don't i don't like i mean i i, I don't have a circle where I'm, I'm living in a very different kind of environment would you recommend this book to anybody in your it's, circle it, it, it's it's pretty dense writing well that's wonderful uh, i mean i loved it i loved it i've probably read it more than once or at least parts of it i, I would recommend it but i think you would have to be in a certain in a certain space to stick with it Right, right. Um, but, but, but beyond the space, though, do you think it's possible to have the conversion through answer to Job? In other words, can you be very deeply steeped in the Christian tradition and then be open? Victor White wasn't. And they were they had correspondence and he couldn't he couldn't go as far as Jung took it uh, with answer to Job. So could you could you imagine anybody in your circle who are, you know, really devoted Christians to be able in the traditional sense to be able to jump to something like answer to Job, which actually does honestly confront you with a completely different archetypal story it's still related but do you think that is a possibility that there could be a jump from one to the other in in any way or do you need to do the no I, I i i think i think uh experience has to has to um yeah. soften one up before you can do that right I, and I mean, I, i'm not yeah 
And is it possible? Like, again, we go back to that, that same thing. Like you have to give up identity in the community. You have to give up our, um, a story that makes you feel safe. So I can see where people have, why they, they hold fast to beliefs, because you're giving up a lot when you decide that this paradigm is going to come in and going to challenge and I will accept it. At least I will entertain it critically, whether I, you know, whatever I follow on afterwards, that's really hard. That's not an easy thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so I wouldn't say I'd, I'd get someone to, to okay. I would never get anybody to read the later works of yoga until they kind of tackle a little bit before. We talked about the books. What music do you want to recommend the ghost? So these are the books. And by the way, just recap and they're all difficult books. So, <laughs> uh, cool. and, and I should say right now that all of the, okay, Elaine Pagels with the Gnostic Gospels and Steph, Stephen Hall. Um, and I'm having a, I'm having a completely uh, white holler. Uh, both of them are, and I will put the links, both of them are very easy to find on YouTube. So if you don't want to read the books, you can find them lecturing or talking or being interviewed or something. Uh, and then, of course, Sensor Job, we'll leave it up to you to decide if you want to tackle the beast or not, because it is a difficult book. So, yeah, you can decide. So if you're going to recommend what what music should we listen to that reflects this mystery? That's where we're heading. I've got three. I've got three artists, two of them bands, um, an Icelandic band, uh, Sigur Rós. The first couple albums are phenomenal, very uh, kind of put you in a um a transcendent space, a very mystical kind okay. of feel in it. So I, I like, uh, they had an album in 99 that was, that was, that's my favorite. And then they had another one that, uh, in 2003, and I can't think of the names of them for any, they're, they're, I think they're in Island, Island, Islandic. So you wouldn't be able to, to pronounce so I would be, anyway. Yeah, I wouldn't be able matter. to pronounce them correctly. Yeah. I'll, I'll um, no problem. And, and then uh, the artist that actually discovered them is also Icelandic, and that's uh, Bjork. Vespertine, I believe, mm-hmm. is the album of hers that uh, has that very mysterious quality. And then anything Radiohead. Give me a representative uh, song of Radiohead so people can say Oh, this. gosh, I'm terrible with song titles. Okay. Um, Which is funny I, as a songwriter. I, I, <laughs> I it's would like say getting titles of books, but whatever, I would yeah. I would say um, I I more think of Radiohead in terms of albums. So oh, okay. I, I would say from I mean I really like the Bins was their second album, but from OK Computer on uh, OK Computer was their third album. It came out in ninety eight or ninety seven. I can't believe which I can't remember which. But um, from that forward, definitely. But that album in particular, OK Computer. Um, what makes very, it? Uh... What makes it mysterious? What makes that music? Well, what, what what are you identifying as mysterious music? Exploring, it really feels like an exploration, uh, experimentation, uh, feeling, uh, exploring the space, whatever that means. Right. You know, it, it's just an open sound, if that makes sense. It's not, you know, it, it's not the same typical uh, in the songwriting it's not all tied off with a pretty bow necessarily and compact and two minutes and 53 seconds long. It's, um, 
it has uh, structures that feel open. The music, the the structure of the the song and the music it feels very open, and the instrumentation is just I would call it it's just suggestive of of another world. Right is how right. I would say it. It's funny when you were talking about that. You know, they always say that the difference between European film and American film is that you can they can stand ambiguity at the end in, in Europe, and so they can make films where nothing is really certain. You just move on. I know there are yeah. American filmmakers that do that as well, but most people want things wrapped up in a bow because ultimately, what you're looking for in art is certainty. <laughs> you don't want any uncertainty, but right. it's the things that are uncertain that make you return because you just there. There's a feeling, you know, and you keep you're trying to figure out why why you feel like that. But so so that's a good way to that's why I'm thinking about it. And I, w- I would say that these three things, these three different artists that I'm recommending, one certainly has to be in the right space. OK, yeah, to to um, sit with these things. It's like uh, it's not, it's almost like taking a mind altering substance. And mm-hmm. if you're not in the right space, it could take you in in a bad direction. And right. uh, uh, so I have to find myself uh, sometimes I'll, I'll I might put on a certain album from Radiohead or whatever, and I'll be like, man, this is too much. I, I can't I can't deal with this right Interesting. now. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we shouldn't have them read as the job and listen to Siguro. So <laughs> that would probably be a bad combination. Right. Right. Too much. Right. Yeah, that, that's right. it. Well, I mean, look, I mean, ultimately, what I like about all of this is that the idea that there is ambiguity and you're not going to get the answer and there is no answer. You're sort of exploring. Uh, that's why I like the 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 metaphor of a light within that you you don't know what that's actually what the shape will be what's gonna right. where it's gonna take you and so you have to really have faith in a different way than it's commonly understood that some something in you is propelling you along not the right path because the right sounds like there's some sort of right. you know oh perfect path your path but the path you need to go on which yeah. by the way is rocky and hilly and you may fall off. That's just the way it is, right? So that's why I think all of this is really, really interesting and worth talking about. Okay, well, I don't know what we'll come up with next time after mystery. God knows. But there it is. So I I will post all of this information for people who might want to take a shot at any of these books, music, and maybe, yeah, we'll see. Thanks for listening. If you like Jay's music and would like to support the creation of more, follow the link to the GoFundMe page in the show notes. You can support my work by buying my new novel, Invocation, at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and through many booksellers across the world. For now, until next time.